In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Dear friends in Christ, on this Trinity Sunday, I invite you meditation on the Gospel lesson from John chapter 8. We enter the text in the middle of an angry conversation, but the, the adversaries are not who you might think. Verses 30 and 31. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him. Jesus began to teach them. Yet in a handful of verses, we hear what one Lutheran theologian characterizes the rage of the Jews. They didn't want to listen. Will we listen? Are we willing to be taught by our Lord? That's my prayer this morning. But what enraged these nascent, these young believers in Christ? It began with a question of truth and freedom. And their rebuff, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. No, you all, we all are slaves to sin. And the slave does not remain in the house. But the Son does, and Jesus the Son has come to set us free. The Jews don't understand. And as a result, it's easy for them not to hear. No, they insist, Abraham is our father. If he were, you would do the works of Abraham, Jesus replies, not seek to kill me. But the rhetoric escalates. We have one father, even God. If you were, you would love me, for I come from God. You are the father of the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So our text opens with this double insult. Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? The problem is, we find it very easy to keep from hearing God. It's not a new principle. It goes all the way back to the garden, right? What was the serpent's line? Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And you remember how the line of questioning went. In fact, it's easy to gain sympathy with that thought process that began with that questioning. It is, frankly, somewhat surprising, even monstrous, that a good God would bait a trap in a tree with this subtle serpent, making it quite clear that he's both consent to the existence of evil in his world and permitting his sinless creatures to be tempted. It does sort of turn us off. And if we concentrate on what we don't understand, well, it becomes real easy to turn down the volume and not pay attention. People in our text couldn't deal with verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. What about Abraham, they want to know? What about the prophets? They died. What are you saying we'll never see death? They have, of course, twisted Jesus' meaning. Jesus never claimed that Abraham never stopped breathing. But he lives. Remember the confrontation with the Sadducees in Luke chapter 20? They come to him with the challenge of, remember, the seven brothers and the one wife? And Jesus answers their challenge of the resurrection by taking them back to Moses in the burning bush and God's self-introduction. I am the God of your father the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, so it made it real easy for them to turn down the volume and simply not hear what Jesus is saying. We suffer the same malady. When we don't understand, 
we tend to turn down the volume. Take the doctrine of the Trinity or the complexity of the Athanasian Creed. Many would rather just skip it, turn it down, tune it out, and check it off. Well, I'm not going to solve or to explain the entire Trinity this morning, but I would suggest that the triune God has revealed himself in Jesus. Drop down to another tricky passage, down in verse 58. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. We were beside the burning bush earlier, and a little later in that exchange, we will hear this, I am. What one theologian calls God's self-disclosure formula. I am who I am. Say to the people of Israel, I am has sent you to me. We hear it again in Moses' song in Deuteronomy 32. Look, look, I am, and there is not a God except me. To know Jesus is to know I am, which is to know Yahweh. It is to know the creator of heaven and earth, to know the Almighty. Gregory the Great, writing on our text, writes, Our Redeemer graciously turns their gaze from his body and draws it to the contemplation of his divinity. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Before indicates past time. But because divinity does not have past and future time, but always is, he did not say, I was before Abraham, but before Abraham was, I am. I am. Both the Son and the Father is eternal. That the Son is also the creator, we learn in the prologue to John's Gospel. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And even more poetically, in the text from Proverbs 8 that Eric read for us, the Son, the triune God, also reveals himself as the creator or the sustainer. Colossians 1, he, our Lord Christ, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's omnipotent, all-powerful. John 10, speaking of us as his sheep, Jesus declares, No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. I and the Father are one. The unity of the Trinity among the diversity of persons is seen in their singular will. Francis Pieper commenting on John 5.17 when Jesus says, My Father is working and I continue to work, writes, The Son can do nothing of himself. And since there are not two omnipotent operations, but only one, and the same omnipotent operation in both Father and the Son. Wrestling with the Trinity is hard, but don't turn down God's word, for in the Son, the triune God has revealed himself. Even more, in Jesus, the triune God has revealed his salvation. Go back to the second reading that Eric read for us from Acts chapter 2. Peter declares, Men of Israel, Hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Jesus didn't work in a box. The raising of Lazarus, the empty tomb, they were the talk of the town. It is not yet two months since those things happened. This Jesus you delivered up that you crucified at the hands of lawless men, God raised up. And then Peter quotes Psalm 16 as prophetic proof that it would be, followed by another Davidic, Psalm 110, that places the ascended Jesus at the right hand of God. And finally he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord 
and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. In this revelation lies the promise of our text in 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Because Christ lives, all those in him will live. The promise is both universal and personal. If anyone, God would have all men and women and children to be saved, 1 Timothy 2.4. But each one is baptized individually. In water and word, God declares, this one, you are mine. But not all will listen. In the face of this revelation, either obedient trust or outright rejection is the result. There's no middle ground. There's no half of Jesus. For the baptized, it's obedient trust. We keep his word, as the text suggests. But what does that look like? Well, three things. First, it is faith in the word. Listening to, not turning down the volume on the word. There are difficult passages, certainly. As Lutherans, we let the plainer passages direct our thinking, our understanding of the more obscure. All scripture is of one piece. It all points us to Jesus. Faith in that word, the word incarnate, who reveals the Trinity and the word incarnate that saves us from sin. Second, to keep my word is obedience to the word. Not for a justification, that's accomplished by the incarnate word and delivered by the Spirit and baptism. But the Ten Commandments are not multiple choice. While they cannot save us, they certainly do direct our path. They spell out for us what the love of God and of our neighbor actually looks like. And it is obedience to the incarnate word. It's also following after in the footsteps of the Good Shepherd. And third, to keep my word means defending that word against tampering. Tampering slips in by subtle means when the word gets tempered by I think or I feel. And it becomes my word and not his. Let the thus set the Lord stand. Not to stop discussion, but to direct it. But as Peter says, do it winsomely, gently, and in love. Don't turn down the volume. They need to hear it. But don't blast them out either. Listen to their words so that you may rightly apply his word. To what end? Why do this? Why listen and struggle with the mysteries of God? Well, that promise in verse 51. Such a one will never see death. As with Abraham, so the promise of life in Jesus' presence. We sang in our sermon hymn, Christ the way that leads unfailing to the Father's home on high. Christ the truth that frees the captive. Christ the life that cannot die. Luther in a sermon in 1533 on our text writes, This word, will never see death, must be apprehended by faith so that we never doubt that Christ's promises is true. For he who would let go of this word and judge by his feelings will feel only death and no life at all. Therefore, in such a plight, we must not judge by sight and sense, but by what we hear in the word. We must say, I see that I shall and must die. But I have the assurance in the word of my Lord Christ that through him I shall live again. God will be gracious to me for the sake of his death and resurrection and will grant me eternal life. Quote. 
On this Trinity Sunday, I admit the temptation to turn down the volume, ignore the mystery, and to stick to what I know or what I think I know. But the hidden God, the triune God, is revealed in Christ. His hidden love is revealed on the cross. His hidden life dwells within all the redeemed. Sometimes we only see what we're looking for. Clay Anderson grew up outside New York City and was an avid fan of the Brooklyn Dodgers. Even today, he still admits he can't quite forgive him for the move west. Anyway, his childhood arch enemy was the New York Yankees. I'd only seen both teams on TV and heard them on the radio, he writes, until my dad invited me to skip school and go to the fifth game of the 1956 World Series. It was the Yankees versus the Dodgers. I remember sitting there. The smell of the hot dogs, the cheer of the crowd. I knew my Dodgers were going to shellack those Yankees. Unfortunately, they never even got on base. I tucked it away in my memory, didn't think much about it, until one day in my adulthood, I mentioned my very first live baseball game to one of those, you know, walking sports almanac kind of guys. You were there, he said. You were at the game when Don Larson pitched the only perfect game in World Series history? Well, yeah, but we lost. I was so caught up in my team's defeat, I missed this greater page of history. The Jews were caught up in Abraham, and they couldn't see the Messiah. We're tempted to not see because of what we can't see. But God has revealed himself and his salvation in his Son, in Jesus. Take a look and believe. Amen. Now may the peace that surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen.